There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery. Code Wondery. A warm yet platonic greeting to you, the Nerdist Podcast listener. I think I have a little something going on. It's like, not quite a cold, but not quite a horrible lung infection, but, uh... Something's happening that's pulling my voice down here into the bassier tones. Uh, so that's maybe that's nice. That's nice. This is what like old radio guys sound like. Yeah, coming up next, we got another rock block of Aerosmith, followed by the Atlanta rhythm section. Hey, if you live in Los Angeles and are going to be in the area on January 23rd, that's Monday at 7:30 p.m., uh, I'm going to do a long overdue. A snippet of reading from my book, The Nerdist Way, which came out two months ago. But I wasn't around Los Angeles at the time when it came out, so I couldn't do this then. So I'm doing it now. So come on by. Uh, it's a free Q&A session. There's going to be a book signing right afterwards. And uh, there's going to be food and people and nerds and fun. So come on by Monday, January 23rd, 7 p.m. Uh, reading and Q&A of The Nerdist Way with me, Chris Hardwick. And... Guys, it's happening. I'm taping a stand-up comedy special. I shit a little bit more about it each day uh, until we actually tape it on February 17th, but if you're going to be in New York around then, soon I will have information to get you free tickets because I would really like you to be there. Not people who don't have any idea who I am. Why would I want that? I want you guys to make me feel better about myself because I have a comics ego. But... Uh, I will be doing a bunch of sets in preparation for that stand-up comedy special on February 17th. For instance, if you live in Toronto the 9th through 11th of February, I'm coming to the Comedy Bar. I'm going to do a shitload of sets there to get ready uh, for the special the week after. I'm also performing all over Los Angeles if you're here um, in the next few weeks. I'm literally going up everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. I was going to go to fucking Starbucks and order a drink loudly and try to spin it into a bit to the annoyance of the other customers because that is how committed I am to doing sets. So, uh, yeah, if you're around then, check that out. Uh, details for our other live shows as we are doing podcasts around the country as well are at Nerdist.com slash calendar. I'd really like to send digital hugs to the Hover people because this episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Hover. Hey, I get it. You have a crazy idea for a website that may not be so crazy someday, so you have to register that business. You need to go to Hover to register your domains because that is all they do. They register domains. It is simple Unix philosophy. They do one thing. They do it simply. They do it well. Um, they don't try to sell you a bunch of other services. They get right to it. You can actually talk to a live human being 
If you need customer support, they make it that easy Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern. There's a no-hold policy. You get a live person. You can set up emails, forward emails, redirect domains, create URL extensions, set privacy controls, and it's all within just a few clicks. So if you need to register a domain, make sure you go to hover.com slash Nerdist and use the offer code Nerdist to get 10% off your domain name registration. Thank you so much to Hover for being a continuous sponsor of the Nerdist podcast. We love you for that. Uh, and now this episode, Scotty in. I can't. I can't actually do. I, I really wanted to get in there and do the Scotty in. Uh, but now I've completely shredded my voice, which was already on the edge anyway. Oh, I'm gonna cough. All right, I'm not gonna cough. Okay, I'm not coughing. Oh, think of a grapefruit. Does that help? No, that sneezes. Oh crap. <coughs> I'm so sorry. I could have just cut this out, but I won't. Now entering Nerdist.com. All right, feeling good? Yeah. How you doing? Good. Good. Scotty, how are you? Jonah and Matt are not here. Jo- Matt is uh, coming back from CES, I think, or he's going to CES. I don't think you don't know if you're coming or going to CES. I think you just go and then it's a weird time vortex and then you're back home and you wake up in your underwear in your bed and you don't know how you got there. Don't, can't you just find out about new gear coming out just by going on the internet and seeing it on the internet instead of actually having to go to a con- like a convention for it? Weirdly, we do have the technology now <laughs> to just look at things remotely. Right. <laughs> if only there was a gadget no! where I could look at other gadgets. Well, I better go to CES and see if they have that. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's so crazy. I mean, listen, I don't mind. I I I did CES for quite a few years and it's it's exciting and fun. There's a lot of crap that you have to wade through. Right. The 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 car section is the funniest part because the it's I mean, it's not for cars. It's just that they're 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 showcasing like uh like a mobile audio and video. Okay, sure. And so they get these cars and they trick them out with monitors in places you would never have, and like right. in the they're like a flat and uh, just like some weird LCD flat screen under the trunk in the hood <laughs> there, and then on the sides in case, they, just in yeah. case. And it's it ba- basically they're 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 these giant subwoofers that uh, have an engine. That's essentially what they are. Right. Do they have those hot ladies in thongs? Like, uh, well, hot in quotation marks. Yeah, well, it's, it's like I mean, it's Vegas, yeah. so it's a you know like you can see who you know. It's there. There a lot of them are strippers, right? And I'm not. I'm not saying that as like I'm. I'm just a disgusting male, assuming that girl's a stripper. <laughs> like I know for a fact a lot of them are are exotic dancers. Exactly. And so exotic dancers. Exotic exotic dancers. I it, like the I like the ones where it's like lowrider magazine style, like those those types of displays. Just you know, like uh, <laughs> like a, a fucking. Uh, a, a spike heel that the base point is the size of a molecule, yeah. and then it's you know it's fifteen and inches tall. About forty five pounds too heavy to be wearing that bathing suit. I mean, listen, it's <laughs> it, it's there. You know, CES uh, absorbs a lot of the resources of Las Vegas. Um, although not, it's not going on at the same time as the Adult Entertainment Expo this year, which it, usually they're this kind of the same weekend. Oh no, that's a clusterfuck. Have you been to one of those? No, I, I've never been. To- Actually, don't. never been to either. Don't go. I try and stay away. 
even Comic-Con. I used to go to Comic-Con pretty much regularly, and I've stayed away from that now for a few years. It's just uh, conventions are they're just they're kind of a bummer. You're in a different position, though, because, I mean, you I guess you could just put a mask on, or you could just say you're not Scott Ian, but you're cosplaying as Scott Ian. Yeah. No, I'm just I mean, a big Anthrax fan. I don't know. Well, that that I guess that is my biggest issue, is just not even b- being able to walk around the floor there. Because I asked to get... I you know I always get asked to come down and do signings there and and it's fun but I can't you can't do anything I can't walk four feet without getting stopped. You want to see everything. I want to see everything and I can't. And I actually thought about I should just put my Gene Simmons mask on and walk around and nobody <laughs> will bother me. Are you, like a mask or would you actually do the full makeup? No, like the mask. I have one of those crappy rubber like full head Gene Simmons mask I could just put on and then I'd be really sweaty after five minutes but this is going back this is going back a stretch but when I was a little kid and Kiss was just fucking the hot shit every kid like at every carnival got the Kiss face paint oh which I've, I've had it which was the worst thing you can do to your parents because that shit just gets you sweated off and it just gets fucking everywhere just like black white and red yeah it's gross everywhere <laughs> <laughs> it's gross. I've done it a few times as a kid, and then uh, most recently, actually, I guess it was back in 01 or 02 when I was hosting the rock show on VH1, and it was the Halloween episode, so they put me in full jean makeup, full costume, and I was interviewing Ozzy that day, and he had been told that it's Scott, and I know Ozzy, I've known him you know, at that point for 15 years or something, and he was told it's, it's Scott from Anthrax, he's the guy who hosts the show, he's interviewing you. He had been out doing promo since, started with Howard Stern that morning for like doing promo for his record, and it's like five in the afternoon now, so he's uh, been going all day. And he's Ozzy. And he's Ozzy, right? And this is like, <laughs> the Aussie this is when Ozzy was like, it was really like full on like Osbournes, and he was just kind of not really there. And, right. And uh, so Sharon and Ozzy walk into the studio, and I say hi to Sharon, and I see him looking at me from across the room with like... Just this shit smell face, like, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> Who is this jackass dressed as Gene Simmons? What am I doing uh, here? How low have I sunk that I'm promoting my record with some dude dressed up like Gene Simmons? Like, so we, we sit down and we start talking, and he's I'm asking him questions, and he's giving me nothing. Uh, like, literally, <laughs> like, so, you know, I heard the record, and blah, and he's like, uh-huh, you know, just... And I'm like, he thinks you're, yeah, he thinks you're punking him. He's like, Ozzy hates me. I'm like, in my brain, I'm like, oh my God, he hates me. Like, what happened here? What's going on? What's going on? And it's just going terrible, like five minutes of like nothing. And I'm just trying to come up with things to say now and literally sweating through the makeup. And all of a sudden, like he kind of leans in and he starts staring at me really close. I'm like, oh boy, this is about to get really <laughs> weird. And, uh, and he's like, it's you. It's you. I can't do the accent. And and uh, I'm like, uh, yeah, it's it's Scott. He's like, oh, oh my God, mate. Oh my God. Uh, like, and I'm like, I thought they told you. And he's like, no. And meanwhile, I know they told him, but sure. he's like, no. And then Sharon's like, of course they told you, Ozzy. And and uh, he's like, oh. And then he gives me a big hug. And then the next 15 minutes was awesome. And I was like, oh, I said, I thought you hated me. He goes, well, I thought it was just some asshole dressed up like, <laughs> who's this asshole dressed as Gene Simmons with didn't a bald the, head? Didn't the chin beard give it away? I, he just, it was Ozzy. It was, you know, very just sure. like, no idea. Yeah, it was. That is the Scott Ian signature chin beard. I think it, I think it should be the Ian from now on. It should be the Ian. But yeah, that's that's the last time I dressed up as Gene. I, I kind of he kind of scared me off it a little bit. <laughs> I I love the I 
what I, I had Ozzy on the podcast last year, and I was terrified that it was going to be that situation because right. he doesn't know who I am. Right. And uh, I was afraid it was going to, I would ask him a question to be like, right. Yeah. Uh huh. But he was so thoughtful and wonderful and had great stories and cool, cool. He was, he was such a sweet guy. Yeah. He's, he's awesome. That's why I was so like taken aback. I'm like, oh my God, this guy he either doesn't know or f- I did something to piss him off. Well, you're lucky that that's one of those situations where, it could have completely damaged your friendship with him for years, <laughs> and neither one of you would have known. I know. What if he never said anything, and it like just would have ended terrible, and they would have edited it somehow together where it would have worked for like 60 seconds, and then, yeah, I don't see the guy for 10 years thinking Ozzy hates my Someone, Someone interviews you, and they're like, so what do you think about Ozzy? You're like, I don't know. We used to be friends, and then this one time... Yeah, and he's like, what? That was you? Why didn't you say something 10 years ago? <laughs> well, I'm glad it all worked out. I'm glad you and Isaac got together. I I've, I, feel like I've known you for about 10 years, maybe? Because you, you, you... Late and, 90s? You and Pearl probably. used to go to the... Because um, the, the, you're a huge comedy fan. Right. So you guys used to go to that, you know, that... What was the... Old Largo. The monolith Monday yeah. night uh, comedy Largo show that, you know, that a lot of people spun out of. Yes. Like the Pattons and the Sarah Silvermans and the David Crosses and the uh, I knew the them all when. <laughs> I mean, that was really that was when everyone's career. It's funny how long it takes. Like, because within the scene, all those guys started kind of in the early '90s when they migrated to Los Angeles, right. and then in the late '90s, Largo was like that was the room to go to. It was the epicenter, and it still took another, I don't know, five to ten years for all of those people to really hit. But from but from that standpoint, man, those Monday night shows that was the greatest. <sighs> it, it, you know, and it's when and when I've never really thought of it that way. But like when you think about those Monday nights, I mean, it was so hard to get in that room. And certainly there were people outside of just comedy nerds like me who it's a small were room. coming there, a tiny room. But you know, you certainly had bookers from TV shows coming because people were starting to get booked on you know th- on on late night talk shows and stuff out of, out of that scene already were being booked. You know. But it took, I guess, the real mainstream, you know, movies, let's say, it took the real mainstream much longer to catch on. Like, you needed to be, you needed to already have broken out of Largo in some way, shape, or form before that took notice. But that was the launching pad for, I mean, for everybody, you know, for every, for so many comedians. Zach, I mean, look at Zach. Yeah. You know, crazy. I mean, I remember Jack Black, you know, with Tenacious D. I, I swear I remember seeing. Him play at Largo and other places around town to nobody. <laughs> I mean, literally nobody. Less people th- than were actually in those fake intros from the HBO show. Yes. Like, you know, and I, so it's it, it's kind of cool to see people that, you know, you became friends with and thought were really funny and talented and then all go on the It's always just careers. nice because in your, in your head when that, when then, and then when people kind of make it, then you go, ah, I knew it. Yeah. It was like you knew, you know, you got to sort of be early adoptery about about comedy. Yeah, and then I could be the I could be the old grandpa guy sitting on his on his, you know, porch going, Oh, he hasn't been funny since nineteen ninety seven. That's you know? when he was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Did now sh- hook the hangover schmangover. <laughs> Those were cause there was no real you know, like uh, going on the road, I was I hadn't been going on the road at that time, but it was still like comedy was in a lull in the late nineties because right. the eighties sort of destroyed club comedy for, you know, everyone just got oversaturated. And so there were not a lot of rooms where people who did the kind of comedy that we did, that like that specific group, where you could go into a full room of people and destroy. Most of the time, if you were just out in the world, you know, like you... (laughs) 
was a little bit of a struggle. Yeah, I mean, that was an oasis. I had never seen anything like it before. I got introduced to it through, uh, through Posein because I was a crazy Mr. Show fan. And then uh, Brian and I became friends, and then that's when I started going to shows there. He's, I think he must have said, you know, if you ever go to Largo on a Monday night, like you'll probably see Bob and David there. And, that's when I, and I literally at the time lived around the corner from Largo right over there. Uh, off of Fairfax, so it was it was so perfect. Oh, that's great! Yeah, it was it was the best. I, I miss it. I I've only been to the new spot a few times now, and it's also because I live like forty miles from there now, so it's kind of harder to. And go And you got a baby, yeah. You know, when you're married, and it's like it's harder to just it's harder it's harder to whimsically just go. Oh, well, fuck it, let's just go do see comedy tonight. Yeah, it is, and now it literally takes like it's got to be like it's got to be like. Patton Oswalt sending me a car to come. To- <laughs> and it's still like, I don't know if I can make it, bro. The new Largo is great. I love it. I love the Coronet Theater. Um, the tiny, the, the little room at Largo is right. great, too. But I just, I will always have a very special place, you know. That- yeah, and they just, they didn't give a shit in there, which is what I love, too. Like, they didn't cater to... You know, celebrities coming in, like it did the, the whole like, don't you know who I am? It kind was of almost thing. too much in the opposite direction yeah. where they, you know, like, like yeah, you couldn't just get a table. Like if you didn't have a reservation, you nope. weren't getting a table. Nope. Simple as that. And it kind of great. They allowed, you know, like what was it? Maybe a dozen people could stand by that tiny little bar in the back, and that was it. Like that was it. And there was no fucking around. And like if if you talked, you, like you were shit on by whoever's on stage and generally thrown out. Like, what was that dude's name? Flanagan. Like, yeah, Flanagan. I still mean, runs Largo. Yeah, they they didn't fuck around. In he there. did not That's fuck what, around. I loved it. I he, love that. He runs a tight ship and it's good and yeah. it's great and those shows were fun and that that Largo is where I saw in the late nineties. It's where I saw our early two thousands. Uh, Mitch Hedberg did a bit where he said he wrote a spec menu, and so he just went through and read all these menu items. He'd be like, I am not sure I am using braised correctly in that context. <laughs> yeah, that was another him, thing. The food never, never saw him do that anywhere else. You had to eat when you, you sat down. Food, yeah. uh, we offered one time we we didn't want to eat like we had eaten already. It was a bunch of us, and we just said we'll just give you the money for the minimum. <laughs> and they said, No, you have to order food. It was like, you to eat. you're saving money. We'll just give you the money. Right. Don't make us food. And you have to eat. So we just ordered food and it sat there. I remember the food being pretty good. But you're, you're, we've, you did, you were on the, by the way, uh, I'm, you, I definitely want you on Talking Dead this, for the, this next round. You were in the pilot for Talking Dead. Yes. And so you helped get that show picked up. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, it was a blast and you are an insane zombie fanatic, but. Hey, I got to I got to get made up by by Greg and his team and get to be a zombie for a day on the set of that webisode. So for yes. me, that was like that was like more payment than I ever deserved to go sit there and talk about zombies with you. Like that's not like they flew me to New York to sit around with you and talk about zombies. Yeah, and, and like paid for drinks. It was like it was kind of a like it was already win win, and then I got to be a zombie as well. So we so you I mean you know what's funny is to see. Like guys, guys like yourself and bands like Anthrax or Rob Zombie or, or people where you you go, when you sort of peel back the layers, you're kind of like, because I think people assume those guys are fucking crazy. Uh, exactly. What's it like hanging out with Rob Zombie? You guys drink goat blood? And I'm like, no, <laughs> he's a normal nerdy guy who just happens to do this thing. And at the core of it, that's really that's really who you guys are. Yeah, that's that's it. I mean, mo- well, most of us, I you know, I know some dudes who aren't as 
let's say, easy to get along with, let's say, and, you know, aren't into as many nerdy things, I, I guess maybe you just have to find what they're into. Like, a lot of people think Kerry King from Slayer is, you know, like, he would be the epitome of, like, oh, God, don't talk to him. Like, he's evil. But, you know, if you if you talk to Kerry about the right subjects, he's the nicest guy in the world. Like, he doesn't care about comic books, but if you get into a discussion of snakes or, you know, uh, Jägermeister, then, you know, <laughs> or The Simpsons, you know, you're in. I shouldn't be blowing Kerry's cover. You know? Oh, yeah. No, sorry. Yeah, he wants to talk about darkness and evil. What? Uh, when was your first Comic-Con? When did you go to your first Comic-Con? Wow. Um, probably 90s. I guess sometime mid-90s. I moved to... L.A. in 90, so my first one was probably somewhere, I would assume, around 95, somewhere yeah. around there, 95, 96. Was it San Diego? Was the San Diego show you went to? It must have been, yeah. uh, right? I, I guess. Was it somewhere before there? Well, I mean, there's just Comic-Cons everywhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, my first San Diego was then. Oh, my first actual comic convention? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. I was a kid. Probably, you know, just some weird, lame convention in New York when I was a kid, you know, 11 or 12 years old, something like that. Who was, who was appearing? Would you remember any of the highlights of the show? I don't even think they had appearances back then. This was literally like a bunch of tables set up. With, with comics. With boxes and comics. And, and you know, you just go around and sift through people's boxes and look for shit It was needed. a step above a garage sale, basically. It was. It was like probably at a Jewish center. It was like at a Jewish <laughs> center in Queens. In, like, the room where people get by misfit or married, and they just, it was a bunch of weird dudes with tables set up and boxes on them filled with comics. Under their breath, going, someday we're going to take over, and everyone being like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, and as kids, and here we are. Me and my friends, of course, we would immediately go, besides, you know, looking to fill holes in our collection, we would immediately go looking for Playboys and penthouses. Like, oh, because yeah. they would just be out on tables, and nobody would look at you weird if you were standing around looking at them. No. Which was like weird in those days. I'm just, uh, I'm just a vagina nerd. I don't know. Yeah. I, just, I really nerd out on vaginas. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it was like 1975. You know, it was that kind of stuff. There was no internet yet. For no. Porn. And, and the <laughs> 70s is when they really, because, you know, like all, all of the nudie mag stuff before then was just, was very artfully done, and you could, you'd see boobs, but then, and then not much. And the 70s, just like all bets were off for like full frontal, full frontal bush. A lot of ladies had yeah. uh, what is now the, the modern day Ian. <laughs> That's gross. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know what I, and it's gross in so many ways. I can't even think of the, just the idea of this, of it looking like that would pretty much turn someone off of ladies forever. A little I think. bit of a chin beard. I mean, imagine it was just like hanging down that long. How long does it take to grow a chin beard? <laughs> How long does that take? Is that just is that just nonstop for decades? Well, I've had I've had something here since 86, but Jesus. that's not how long it, obviously. Sure. I think if I just shaved my beard tomorrow, this would probably take about two years. Wow. I'm thinking. I'm a, I'm a very swarthy Jew, so <laughs> it, it could actually maybe be more like two months for could all be two I months. know. Like this, this here right now, that's only a few days. That's oh, maybe like, Jesus. this is like three days. You might be a lycanthrope. So, you yeah. might be one of those wolf boys. I have pictures from 87 where I once just let, we, we were making, I think it was when we were making Among the Living. So it was like this three month period where I, I just didn't shave. I didn't have any, the, any goatee thing going on. I just didn't shave. And, uh, 
and I had long hair then. And literally my beard, I mean, three months, I had this crazy Grizzly Adams beard that pretty much grew up to my eyes, <laughs> into my eyebrows. Your eyelids. Which at the time were still, as before I, I actually did any kind of manscaping. So I kind of had a unibrow back then in the 80s anyway. So I really was Jojo the Wolf Boy. Yes. I, I literally turned into that. Either that or Wolfman Jesus. It was one of the... <laughs> oh, Wolfman <laughs> Jesus. That's how he came back three days later. He got bitten by a wolf. And I have pictures of that. I mean, it was just, I was just a hair face. It was crazy. Well, uh, you, we've, we've had several conversations about, uh, you, because you've been a comedy fan for so long, you had some great stories about, like, the comedy store from the 80s, and you had some Sam Kinison story that was awesome, and how, yeah. long, you, you, so you, have you always, were you, you influenced by comedy in the 70s, in the 80s? Yeah, you know, I, I've been into it, I, and I can't even really think how, because, like, there's specific things I could think, like, well, you know, my parents were into this, so, like, my mom was really into horror. Like, since I was a little kid, I got into horror because my mom loved horror movies, and, like, she she turned me on the horror and reading Stephen King and all that kind of stuff. So, but comedy, I can't specifically remember, like, how. It's definitely something I must have gotten into somehow on my own, but, like, I remember buying the Steve Martin record, Let's Get Small. Yes. Like, I remember buying that album, you know, like I was a, a huge fan of his in the 70s. And I mean, all kinds of stuff from Red Fox to, you know, uh, uh, of course, I can't remember anything right now. But anything that was funny in the 70s, I was watching Saturday Night Live when it started. Me I was too. a huge Carlin fan. Like, um, I've been into comedy since I was a little kid. So um, always, like, I remember going to the, uh, what's that place? It's it's total brain fart. The place that Louie walks into at the beginning of his TV show. Comedy the Cellar. Comedy Cellar. I mean, I used to go to that place all the time, late 70s, early 80s. Like, um, As far as I could remember, as soon as I could get into places, I would go and watch live comedy. And what was the, what was the Kinison story that you told me? The Kinison story was we were massive fans. Like When I say we, uh, Anthrax, we mm -hmm. were all massive fans of, of Sam's. And we sampled him in our song, I'm the Man. We sampled his scream in that song. And that we needed like it was already at the time where you had to start getting permission you couldn't just sample stuff randomly anymore cuz people were starting to sue yeah so we got permission you know from his management to use his scream in the song and we had found out like through through his management to our manager that oh yes yeah, Sam's a big fan he said tell the guys he's he's stoked and you know they could use whatever he, they want and blah 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 so you know we couldn't believe it that Sam you know had even heard of us and and uh so cut to some point in 88, I think we were actually opening for Ozzy out here. I think it was like December 88, maybe. And uh, we were staying at the Hyatt right next door to the comedy store. And our drummer, Charlie, and I were coming back maybe from the Rainbow. We were like walking back. And uh, it was late. I mean, it was deserted. The streets were dead. There was nobody out. And uh, we see Sam Kennison standing, just standing in front of the comedy store by himself. And uh, so we walk up to him. Hey, Sam, it's, it's Scott and Charlie from Anthrax, you know, blah, blah, blah. Hey, guys, what's up? How you doing? Like, no, immediately just, you know, cocaine eyes. Oh. Like, <laughs> like, you just, you can see there was no, absolutely no recognition factor at all. And maybe someone once whispered Were you wearing in kiss makeup? Ear, no. Okay. No one ever, like... If somebody had even said to him about anthrax and we're, they're going to sample, we had he had no idea at that moment. And uh, hey guys, what's up? How you doing? Well, you know, hey, great, wow, it's so cool to meet you. We're massive fans, you know. And uh, do you mind? Can we just take a picture really quick? You know, no one's going to believe that we, you know, we bumped into you. And and he's like, uh, you see that convertible over there? Uh huh. And 
goes, you see that girl in that convertible over there? Uh-huh. He goes, well, I'm going to I'm gonna take that girl in that convertible. We're going to drive up the hill to my house. I'm going to fuck that girl. And then I'll come back down here and take that picture. So why don't you guys wait right here? <laughs> I wouldn't. Right? And I lit- I'm like, really? Like, uh. like and I, in my head, I'm like, you know, he's, wow, what a dick. But like, really? Like, we can't, it'll take literally like... 30 seconds snap we don't we don't even both need to be into it i'll just take one of you and charlie it's cool like i don't need to be in the photo and he's like did you hear what i just said like and he repeats the whole story not even with an attitude but just the whole story again and then he's like all right i'll see you in a little while and he gets in the car and he drives away and me and charlie are just like heads hanging low just like all bummed out oh man what a bummer you know he was a dick whatever so I started thinking about it a couple of days after that, just going, what if in his like cocaine adult state, <laughs> he thought this was like something normal and we were rock stars and we would understand. And he showed up an hour later and we were gone and we were the dicks. <laughs> oh man, I almost had a chance to take a picture with Anthrax. Yeah. And I went and fucked that girl in the convertible. And they didn't wait. Like, what? what's up, bros? You know, like, well, I can't believe it. Like... You know, and I actually started to think about that. Like in his crazy brain at that moment, he might have been thinking that totally normal, they'll get it and these guys will just hang out. Like they'll just go have a drink. And, you know, meanwhile, it's like 2.30 in the morning. It's like a Monday night and there's no one on Sunset. And like, we're like, you know, we're not going to stand here. He's not coming back, but maybe he did. Butterfly effect. What if you would stay there and he came back to take the picture and it completely changed the course of his life and he'd still be alive today? Oh, oh you and Charlie <laughs> killed him. We killed Sam Kennison. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, Scott. Come, why did you do that? It said he was so depressed by not taking a picture with the two guys from Anthrax has sent him into a tailspin he never recovered he never from. fully recovered from it it was, oh. our, it was our fault well anyway that was a long time I ago I still have a good story out of it <laughs> it's still a great story I'm thinking about when I when, when I finally write my book um, in between chapters of like the so called serious crap of you know like just Anthrax whatever I'm gonna do like this kind of like those kind of little excerpts are going to be between the chapters, those kind of stories, and I, that's going absolutely nowhere. That's Do you want to call the book story. Yes, We Can Thrax, or are you not on board for that? <laughs> Do you think that might not be? Yes, We Can Thrax. I don't know. I'm just saying. That's, that's a good name. I, I actually will steal that for a chapter. Like That'll be like the chapter when we sign our deal. It'll be Yes, We Can Thrax. Yes, We Can Thrax. And I'll lie, and I'll say one of us actually said that at the... Like, the night we got signed, it was like, yep. yes, we can, Thrax. And we all put our hands in the middle, and we said, yay, team. Took a and, picture, and yep. then Pearl Jam stole that for the cover of 10. <laughs> and then that's the... How did you guys... I mean, I guess it really is just about doing the kind of stuff that, that you want to do, but, you know, what was going on when you guys are forming, and then all this glam metal, like, pops in the 80s, and then does that feel... A little bit, does that feel like, ah, god damn it, why are these guys doing this? Or did you understand it? I mean, it's... I mean, it seems like, at the core, everyone... Had this was coming from, like, kind of had that original space. Like, you all came from the same space, and then it just diverged. And you guys did the heavier stuff, and some guys yeah. put the hairspray on. I mean, you know, it w- I gotta say, at the time, it was a huge bummer. Like, we hated that scene so much. Um, like, for no other reason than really, I mean, it was just the antithesis of what we were doing. I mean, you know, we were thrash metal. We looked the way we did, you know, whatever. We looked like the Ramones, let's say, and 
those guys looked like ugly ladies and <laughs> and and we're playing I guess here I actually I, I didn't just figure it out. Sometimes it's I, I, I have seven month old, you know, baby brain. So it takes me a little uh, a little bit longer sometimes to get to where I'm going. But the reason why we hated it so much back then was because and it, it wasn't the bands themselves that were doing it, but people were calling that music glam metal or hair metal or pop metal. And for us, it had nothing to do with metal. And it, none of those bands were calling themselves metal. I mean, I've become friends with guys in those bands over the years, and none of those guys ever considered themselves metal bands. They considered themselves rock, rock and roll, hard mm -hmm. rock. And I have no problem with that. Motley Crue is a great rock band. Poison was was playing pop mm -hmm. like music, you know. Um, it, our issue was that we were getting lumped in with these bands that were not metal. We came from, you know, this line of bands, you know, Sabbath, Priest, Maiden, you know, that kind of thing, heavy metal. That stuff, it, it, you can't even really say it, it came from the same line of bands as The Dolls, let's say, and Alice Cooper and Kiss, because it wasn't so much a theatrical thing. It was, it was straight-up glam pop music. Kiss wasn't a metal band. Alice Cooper wasn't metal. The Dolls certainly weren't metal. It was all rock music. So our big thing at the time was just stop calling it metal. And, uh, of course, we have no control over of over the Jew-run media, even though I'm a Jew. And uh, you think, like, where's... <laughs> why you don't know, you control your media better, I know, Scott? really. Like, why don't I get invited to these meetings? But, uh, um, yeah, that was our big problem with it. And, of course, we were all in our early 20s at the time, and, you know, we were idiots, and we were drinking, and, uh, you know, so it just was something that, if anything, just added fuel to the fire of the music we were making. It just made us angrier. So, in a way, it was actually a good thing for oh, us. Oh, gave because, you a nemesis. Yeah, exactly. What There's no hero without an enemy, you know, without the bad guy, and for us, they were the bad guys. So, in a way, your nemesis forces you to go farther out in the direction that ultimately is kind of what becomes your signature because you're exactly. you're trying to fight that that became that almost did you a favor. No, it did. Oh no, we knew it at the time too, you know. I mean, I mean as a comic book fan, of course, you know, but I always looked at us we are we are the bad guys. Like if anything Anthrax is Doctor Doom. They're the Fantastic Four. Right. Like, you know, they're gay. We're we're evil. Like that's the way I looked at it. And like we we needed to like, you know, we were constantly building better robots to go destroy, you know, pop glam rock or whatever you wanted to call it. And our by robots I mean writing thrash metal songs. Sure. Did, did, was it ever hard for you? I mean, I I assume especially. Especially your fans, because uh, listen, metal fans are very passionate nerds. Well, maybe they're not all nerds, but they're very passionate people. Right. And so, you're in a very unique position. Was it was it hard for you guys at all to embrace success? Because maybe people sort of felt like, no, no, you don't get to succeed. You're just my fucking band that I thrash in a small club with, and how fucking dare you? That kind of started. I mean, it, that did start early on because people are so passionate about... I mean, look, I'm guilty of that as well. Like, there's bands that I was into, like, when I had only a four-track demo on cassette, and as soon as they signed their record deal, it was like, oh, I'm not into them anymore. It's like, you know, the tape was so much better. Like, I, I was definitely guilty of that back then. But, uh, yeah, but my attitude was... I learned very quickly, like, the whole idea of sellout... Whoop, sorry. Sorry. That was my oh. fault. 
I, I learned very, very early on, you know, the whole idea of sellout is, it just meant nothing to me. Unless you were going to be Fugazi right. and literally, you know, play your shows for five bucks and, you know, and sell your records for $5 and, and tour in a van for the rest of your life. And that's what you're going to do and commit to it. Then, you know, the idea of even thinking about like, yeah, yeah, we did. We sold, we signed a major label record deal and we want to sell as many records as we can and we want to be big and we want everyone to hear our music. We want, we never understood like our attitude was, well, how is it selling out if you want everyone to hear your music? Like, why can't thrash metal be as big as the Beatles? You know, like that was our attitude. We love what we do and everyone should love what we do because we're making good music. That was, so to me, that was, it's not selling out. It's just doing what you do. No, but your core fans. Well, of course. They yeah. get they get upset because you're not their band anymore. Well, yeah, and they have to and they have to be okay with the fact that they're sharing you with people that they wouldn't hang out with necessarily. Oh, absolutely. And so it's like, wait, we're letting these fucking people into the club? Oh, I don't want them in my club. No, I don't, I don't want to like anything that fucking piece of shit likes. Sure, I get it. I get it. Believe me, because we were those same people. Like we felt that way about bands that we were into. So, <laughs> but if you don't succeed, then it's like, well, then you don't get music anymore. We have to all get jobs. Yeah, I mean, you know, of course, we weren't ever going to let that, you know, uh, uh, define what we were going to do. You know, we couldn't be Fugazi. It's not who we were as people. You know. Is it harder now, you know, now that, you know, you got a family, your wife is awesome and you got a baby and like, you know, is it, is it hard to dig down to find the thrash metal place anymore? Like, what do you guys? Are, Hell no. No. <laughs> I tell you what, having a baby has given me the most insanely evil, horrible, <laughs> horrible, horrible thoughts like I, because you have this life that you're now is suddenly you're responsible for this human and you love this human more than anything I've ever loved in my lifetime. And the idea of anything ever happening to him or, you know, any, any like it's just the night terrors, the things you think about when you can't sleep at three o'clock at night or you're sitting up feeding your kid in the middle of the night and the things you like, it's just insane the horrible, I had one the other night, like I literally, I'm just sitting there and for no reason, I start thinking about my kid was trapped in the house and it's burning and my son is on fire and I can't save him. My son is on like, fire. Yeah, my son I is mean, on fire. literally, I mean, it's just, and I've talked to a lot of, a lot of other, my friends who are in metal bands who have had children and the same thing, they said like this, you know, my buddy Corey from Slipknot, he's like, he had night terrors for two years, just unbelievable nightmares about something happening you know, to his son. And, um, and I, I get it because I, I have the same thing, not like the nightmares every night, but just the idea of something ever happening to him and where my, my imaginative brain goes thinking about these things. I mean, there's so much lyrical fodder and even so much more hatred for mankind now. Because <laughs> they're anything, trying to hurt your kid. Having a kid has made me hate humans even more than I hated <laughs> humans before. Good, good. No, that's a good. That's a good place, you know. Because in comedy, there's always like Patton and Posehn would always joke about like, well, that's the death of your fucking act when you got a kid, because then yeah. you get all emotional. But obviously, it's not the case. They're still writing material. Louis C.K. found a way to yep. make it work. I mean, it's you know. No, there's. Uh, if anything, it's made me. It's it's made me more angry. It it makes me hate everyone and everything even more so. Good, good. I'm glad. I'm yeah. glad that it's. I'm glad that that's helped. <laughs> it has helped. It's going to be like, Daddy, why are you so angry? Because of you, son. And I mean that in a good way. Good, good, good. So it's not... 
So it didn't go. It didn't go the other way. Or like, it's weird. Anthrax covered uh, "Beautiful Boy" by John Lennon, oh, which God. is a very weird. Uh, I don't know why they would. I don't know why they would do that. Yeah, <laughs> picture. Yeah, I shouldn't. I was gonna go somewhere with that, but uh, well, fuck it. Yeah, John Lennon. He's the uh, he's the poster boy for good fathers. He really did a great job. Yeah, Pearl and I talk about this a lot. Like, you know, I get it. You know, from a talent point of view, don't get me wrong. I love John Lennon. Yeah. Unbelievable songwriter. You know, the Beatles. There's nothing I need to say that hasn't already been said about the talent, you know. But as people, eh, not so much. <laughs> you know, I mean, ask Julian. Right. <laughs> I, I've always... I always feel bad for, I mean, listen, this is knowing nothing about the family politics that went on in the Lennon household, but how it reads to me, again, as an ignorant, really uneducated person about everything, but just how it reads to me is, ah, he had this one son, didn't really pay attention to that family, then goes and gets this, this, you know, like art scene wife has a kid write songs for him. Yeah, exactly. Totally ignores the original. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah. That poor, like, I can't even imagine what that must have been like for Julian Lennon watching that happen. Like, yeah. really? He's going to fucking record a song for that kid? And as a father now, like, the idea of that, like, if, like if I just, like, decided, like, eh, you know what? A couple of years from now, I just, I just ditch my family and have a new family. It's great that he was so yeah. supportive of Sean, but, like... Maybe maybe toss a little love in the uh... yeah. He, there was enough to go around. He was a, quite a talented guy. Yes, like, um, I actually get imagine to hang out. like the guy who sang Imagine. Yeah, like really, and yeah. you're not coming. Imagine home for if Christmas. you gave a shit about your first kid. Imagine <laughs> if you didn't come home for Christmas. Um, I actually got to hang out with Sean Lennon randomly one night at a bar in New York City uh, a few years back, and uh, un- like just weird. Like uh, Pearl Pearl knew him already. And we sit down, we just we're having a drink, and it turns out he's a huge fan of the side project I did from the 80s called SOD, mm-hmm. and an even more obscure thing called the Crab Society, which was like the precursor to SOD, which was like this really crazy, like all the, all the songs were eight seconds long. We made this like 59-song demo. The whole demo was like eight minutes. And uh, um, total noise core before that was even a genre. Like, mm-hmm. and... Uh, He's like, dude, I had your Crab Society demo. I'm like, well, how old were you? Four? Like, 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 and he starts quoting these random tracks off of it. And I was like, wow, this kid, like, he knows some really, really random, random, random obs- obscure stuff. So then I, you know, we, we got into this really cool conversation about metal. He, like, he's totally into metal. And, and then, like, I'm not thinking, like, clearly because I was a little buzzed. And I almost blurted out, like, so was your dad an Anthrax fan? And it's like, wait, his dad was killed a year before, <laughs> before you guys. Anthrax was even a band, which thank God I didn't blurt that out. But then I quickly, like, made a left turn, and I said, before Anthrax came out, I changed it to Sabbath. And I said, was your dad an Anth Sabbath fan? <laughs> was he? And he said... I don't know that my dad was like a Sabbath fan, but he had the records in the house and he definitely listened to Black Sabbath. Like it's something I remember him like having the records in the house and listening to a lot heavier stuff. Do you think it would have been weird if you were like, um, do you think your dad would have been an Anthrax fan? <laughs> That's weird. Yeah. Uh, or even worse, like your dad totally would have loved my band. Dude. <laughs> if you talk to him wherever he is, could you just let him know that Scott says hi? But I guess the point of that story was Sean Lennon was super cool. Are there, who else, like, you You must have, I mean, you're, I can't even imagine how many fucking crazy, like, we're at a weird party with this strange collection of 
of I've had a lot of those who let me in here moments like that, like just kind of like standing around, like what you know, like huh, like how did I I get here? Like the, the and of course I can never think of them like when I'm trying to think of them, like it's random occasions I'll be like, oh yeah, God, there was that one time when and then I'll like jot it down. So I, I but there must have been someone where you were kind of nerding out over them, and then you found out they were you know like the Sean Michael, Lennis, Michael Moore randomly sitting at a table with him at some some independent spirit awards thing before it was out here in LA. I don't know if it's even the same one, but I was at some thing at Roseland in New York ages ago, sitting at a table with my friend Guy and uh Michael Moore was at our table and randomly it turns out like he was an anthrax fan and I was totally geeking out over him and and it turns out he's an anthrax fan. So I thought that was pretty cool. And but the cooler thing was the table next to us was literally like it was De Niro, Scorsese, Pesci, Victor Argo, where if you know Scorsese movies, you'd know who Victor Argo is. And then um, the guy who plays like Billy Bats from Goodfellas and he's on The Sopranos, <laughs> that guy, uh, Frank Vincent, that's his name. If you watch any mob movie, you know who Frank Vincent is. And all these dudes at one table next to us. So I was kind of losing my mind. And I, uh, after the awards thing ended and the party starts and everyone just starts, you know, milling around and hanging out and having drinks. So I went up to Harvey Keitel. I said hi to him. He was drunk, so he was super cool. Put his arm around me, and like, he was nice. Joe Pesci was super cool. I even went up to Scorsese and shook his hand. And and uh, uh, De Niro never got up from his table, like big round table that seats like twelve people. He never got up. He kind of sat with his head really low, with a drink in front of him. Once in a while, someone that he that he knew would walk up and like say hi, but completely unapproachable. I think he has social anxiety. I think he's uh, like I had social anxiety because I was no way I was going to go up. Oh, my go! Just say hi to him. Say hi. Like, I'm like, how can you just go say hi? Like he was he was literally had a force field around him. Hi, Robert. Scott Ian from Anthrax. How are you? I am so not going to do anything to improve his day. Like this just he's I mean, I think it's why he doesn't do a lot of interviews. Right. I in the 90s, I did a uh, I did a thing where. They would have you. They would screen a movie to a college audience, uh-huh. and then they satellite piped it into a bunch of other colleges, and it would it would screen before the movie would open. And then I would uh, interview people like the director or people from the movie, and I did that with Analyze This. Right. So it was I interviewed uh, Harold Ramis and Billy Crystal and Ro- and Robert De Niro, and he just he'd just really like he'd go. So what are you thinking? How's it? And he would just go, Yeah. <laughs> and and I didn't get the sense that he was an asshole. I just got the sense of like he is not comfortable talking to people. Like he gotcha. clearly is comfortable like on a set being a character, sure, not sure. not being himself, not having to talk to people as himself. Right. So I think I think he's just you know, in my in my whatever twenty minute experience with him was just that he is very uncomfortable. Yeah, and I was a, or you know, he was a huge singled out fan and was really nervous around me. <laughs> that's probably what it was. Definitely, maybe, maybe that's why he didn't come up to me too. Because yeah. he loved Anthrax. Yeah, I don't. I can't do it, De Niro. Be- hey, Anthrax, they're not gonna. I can't even. Yeah, I can't he couldn't do. believe it. He's like, "There's no way that guy likes my movies. I'm, I'm totally not gonna go shake his." I mean, hands. come on, that guy hosted Singled Out. I mean, <laughs> what does Goodfellas have to offer him? I'm sure that's what De Niro was. Saying. I once, one time when I was a messenger. In this in in Manhattan, I like, was like seventeen, eighteen years old. I was working as a messenger, and Robert Duvall was standing on the corner of like Forty Eighth and Sixth. And I had like literally just walked out of like Sam Ash, and I was standing on the corner going back to work. And it's Robert Duvall. It's like, oh my god! So, oh, there's Magic Johnson, by the way, for real, walking outside. Oh, Magic Johnson is actually—I've <laughs> never seen him in person. <laughs> He's tall. He's tall. <laughs> 
He looks good. He looks really good. He's got the good AIDS, as as they say. I mean, he <laughs> looks totally healthy. He looks great. He looks better than he did at the peak of his career. Tall. <laughs> Tall drink of water. But I'm following Robert Duvall. Like, literally, like, once I don't go up to anybody. Like, that's one of my things. Like, uh, uh, I don't want to ever bother anyone. Like, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a geek over actors and writers and athletes and, you know, pretty much anyone, at, like musicians, not so much, like some musicians, like, but I've gotten to pretty much meet all my music heroes. But, you know, I, I just don't want to ever bother anybody. So I don't go up to anyone. And uh, so I just start following. I, he was walking the same way I was walking. So I stayed about 10 feet behind him. And after about four blocks, we're standing at this corner and it's a red light. And he turns around, and he looks at me, and he says, can I help you? And I was like, oh, my oh, God. Oh, shit. Like, he re- like, I'm that bad at following somebody. He realized. And, and I was like, sorry, Mr. Duval, I'm just a huge fan. And, I, and he's like, what's your name, son? And I said, it's Scott. He goes, well, nice to meet you, Scott. And I'm like, nice to meet you, Mr. Duval. And, and that was it. And it was like, wow, what a cool moment. Meanwhile, he's probably thinking, like, who is this weird, long-haired freak with a Judas Priest jacket on, like, following me? Maybe, or maybe a handful of years later, he'd go, I met that young boy on a bicycle, and now there he is in the Anthrax band. Yep. The yep. Anthrax musical explosion band. And I'm all just like, oh, my God, it's Tom Hagen. What do I do? What do I do? <laughs> How do you guys, I mean, obviously, it's totally passion-driven, because you're doing, when did you guys, when did Anthrax form? 80, 81. 81. So... It's not like it's not like thrash metal was huge at that point. No. So how do you how do you decide? I mean, I guess it really is just passion driven that you decide to pursue a thing that you have no idea if anyone's gonna care. Nobody about. cared. No, we had an idea. Nobody cared. Nobody <laughs> gave a shit. Like we could. But you didn't care. No, we couldn't even get gigs. Like where where we grew up in Queens at the time, um, you know, we would go around to clubs and hand out demo tapes, and 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 you could not get a gig at the time, like unless you were a Van Halen cover band or you know or playing you know new wave uh, at the time unless you were doing blondie talking heads and i had nothing no problem with any of that music it's just that's not who we were as a band and um no but nobody cared about anyone playing original original music certainly original music that sounded like the music we were playing um it made it even harder for us so yeah nobody gave a shit but we didn't care it was just like this is the music we love to do and this is what we're gonna do and it's either gonna happen or it's not and the funny thing is when you think about it it really was like that type of m- music really was not that old at that point because, you know, th- that type of distort, like elect- electric instruments. I mean, obviously we had electric guitars for uh, quite a few decades, but it's not like it's not like people were doing, you know, for, for no, that long. No, not at all. I mean, when I look back on it now, it's kind of weird because in 1981, when we were playing, I mean, all we were listening to at that moment in time really was like Maiden and Motorhead and, you know, a lot of other new wave of British heavy metal stuff. But, like, you know, Maiden were, were basically, like, our gods. Maiden and Motorhead were, you know, were our gods at that point in time. And, um, you know, and, of course, before them, I, you know, I grew up listening to Zeppelin and Sabbath and Kiss and ACDC and Ted Nugent and everything else. But but still, that's 70s, so it's no, like, it's, so it really isn't, it hadn't been around not, that long. What, what's crazy is in 1981, that was already old. Like, what, when you think about it, and when I remember this, like, in 1981, stuff from 1970 was already old music. Mm-hmm. When I look at, back at it now to think that in 1981, we were only 11 years removed from the first Sabbath record, that's a really short amount of time. Yeah. But in 1981, that already seemed like 
that was like ages ago. Yeah. You know, think about 2001. Yeah. <laughs> that it, was 11 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy to think in like in 1981, when we first started, that was only four years after I saw Kiss at the Garden Jesus. in 1977 as a 13 year old kid. Like, uh, but in 1981, those four years, when you age from 13 to 17, that's, you know, that's a huge difference as a human. Think about four years now. So, You're like, you can't even believe, like, what? Four years just happened? What the fuck? Yeah, it means nothing. Like, but, you know, I find the, <laughs> the, the older I get, and I've always been a huge Talking Heads fan, but it wasn't until a couple years ago that I really understood the song Once in a Lifetime. I always enjoyed it before. Because it was, you know, I thought it was fun and right. quirky. But just the idea of waking up one day and really having that weird existential crisis of, how did I get here? What? That's, these are my friends. This is my career. Yeah. This is my, how, what, how did this, ha like, it just feels like all of a sudden. Yeah, and now, and it, all of a sudden, Anthrax has been around for 30 years. It's weird. It's, it is fucking weird. My dad. I, I have no way, there's no way that I, I've, I've tried to sit around and, like put it into some kind of context, and I can't. I your band, can't your it. band could have been married a couple times, had a few kids. Yeah, and it has been. <laughs> <laughs> my dad, my dad always says this thing where he's, you know, my dad turned seventy this in two thousand eleven, and right. he's like, the years turn into months. I don't know what to say. It just, it just fucking flies by, and I'm starting to feel. Like the older you get, the faster the train just starts going. Doo, 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 I'm doo, telling doo, you, doo. I'll probably I'll see you at some point later this year. Like it'll be like October, November, and we're gonna be like, didn't we just do Nerdist? <laughs> Wasn't that like three weeks ago? It's gonna happen. It's totally true. And it I know hurts. It, it sound hurts. Like a, sound like a bunch of old guys right now, but I'm I'm telling you, kids, hold oh. on to it while you can. Jesus Christ! Like, when you're a sophomore in high school and you're like, I still have two more years of this, it feels like. And now I think. You know, when you start setting up stuff now for work, there's usually like an 18-month turnaround uh, yeah. where it's like, well, you know, from the time I had this idea to really get it into motion could take about 18 months. Right. And that's just nothing. It's no time at all. I know. We, I've, the next 18 months of my life, like I, I, 18 months, I pretty much know the next 10 years of my life, you know, as far as anthrax is concerned, like, you know, on a, on a calendar. And it seems so far away to think like 10 years from now and... It's. It really isn't. It really isn't. Oh, I always want to ask you, and I'm sure you told the story a million times. How did you get involved with Public Enemy? What was that? We were uh, Charlie, Frankie, and I, a bass player and drummer. We grew up in Queens in the Bronx, so we were in the epicenter of hip hop when it first started. And unlike a lot of my friends, I got into it. I don't know what it was about about rap when I first heard it. When I first heard like early Run DMC. Um, it just connected with me the same way metal did. I, it was the aggression. Uh, it didn't I have totally guitars, understand that. but the aggression of Run DMC, the aggression in their voices, in their 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 attack, their vocal attack. Well, it was also was a, what a, it was. like a dist it was almost like a distillation of emotion, which is I'm sure what you guys did yeah. when you first. It's just like these are the emo these are this is the most undistorted path between the emotions we're feeling and the music yeah, we're making. Exactly, and uh, I just got into it so. You know, the three of us, we were all into it very early on. And uh, I had a lot of friends working at Def Jam at the time. And through friends at Def Jam, I got to hear Public Enemy. Like, you know, I was, they were playing me demos of Public Enemy. And they instantly became my favorite rap group as soon as I heard Public Enemy. And because to me, Chuck's voice was just the best voice I had ever heard in anything. Never better than yeah. because a brother is madder than madder than Let friend. alone. And then what's funny is to find out years and years later that 
he based his his voice and his rap style after Marv Albert, the sportscaster. Oh my and god, when that's you amazing! Listen to it, when you listen to some of Chuck's yes, phrasing back then, I totally then, hear it. Yeah, it's like Marv Albert is like Marv yeah, Albert. Thanks, Marv Albert. Like it's amazing. As a kid growing up in New York, I mean, he was Marv Albert was my local sp- guy on the six o'clock news. You now, know? was that a choice to sort of satirize uh, an announcer to to kind of like? I don't think so. I I, I don't. He just I, liked his voice. Yeah, I need to ask him. I just recently learned this in this BBC documentary about Public Enemy. Uh, I just learned this, so I need to ask Chuck like to get a little more in depth. But no, I think he loved Marv's voice and he loved. His phrasing and his, you know, his his vocal style. So uh, it just obviously it worked. But yeah, PE became my favorite band. I ended up becoming friends with Chuck. Uh, uh, we met at the Def Jam offices, and like literally, he gave me a Public Enemy shirt. I gave him an Anthrax shirt. I started wearing a Public Enemy shirt on stage with Anthrax all the time, and we were just there was a lot of mutual respect and you know mutual you know fandom going on back and forth between the two camps and. Um, I just had the idea to cover Bring the Noise one day when we were recording the Persistence of Time record, and it was the last thing we recorded in that session. We came up with this arrangement, uh, like a heavy metal arrangement for uh, for that song, and then sent the tape to Chuck and said, well, you know, do you want to do this? And and that's how it all came together. And then are, did you guys tour together with uh, Marv Albert opening for you as Fat Albert, P-H-A-T? <laughs> Mar- Marv should have, he should have like emceed the show. He should have been like the the MC in between bands. Oh, that would have been amazing. I wonder if Marv knows that. I, I wonder if that, Marv that knows Marv, that. That Marv helped carve a path into hip-hop. I think that... Yeah. I think half the people would... For the would, greatest MC of all time. Half the people would love that, and half the people would be like, yeah. oh, really? Yeah, because he's also the guy that like bit a lady on her back or something. No, 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 no. That was, uh, that was Frank Gifford, I think. No, Marv Albert got Oh, Marv did too? Back in the day, yeah, like... For some weird, weird. Like, so he is street. Weird, sexy stuff. He is street. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Marv Albert. I would, I would love to like, like on Marv Albert's deathbed. Uh, Albert's deathbed. It's just like the layers peel back, and it's just this really, it's just this cool black dude underneath that was that was just <laughs> trying to make his way. You know, like, it, but I, I gotta ask Chuck. Like, you know, was it because he was like listening to Knicks games as a kid, and he just like it was something about Marv's cadence, like that? It's like I, I, I just need. To I ask almost, about it I almost feel like it could have been a satirical representation of like, you know, if I'm gonna preach at you, I'm gonna preach at you with. The right. satirical representation of society's voice, which is in my head, Marv Albert, who does these games and does this like it's a right. presentational thing. Yeah, I mean they, you know, they were they were called the Black CNN. So God, <laughs> I so hear it now that you've said that. I've just like yeah, I only just learned this. BBC did a documentary that I, I got to be and it a makes part sense. of, and I just saw it. Uh, PE had it up on their website, so I watched it, and then I saw that I was like, oh my god, like I can't believe I haven't known this for thirty years, you know. Oh, that's some good trivia. Yeah. So what's coming up next for you? You've managed to, uh, you've made, I mean, it's really amazing for, for a guy who's not really like the lead, like a lead singer, which you don't do a lot of, how many, did you do a lot of vocals in the anthrax? Uh, back, I did a lot of backup See? yelling. And here yeah. you go. And you, uh, you've emerged as sort of like, you do all the hosting stuff and you, you know, like, how did that come about? Like you, that usually doesn't happen. It's usually they'll I grab could, the front I could, man. I could tell you exactly why. Um, I was a like I mentioned Iron Maiden earlier. Uh, Steve Harris, the bass player of Iron Maiden, was to me always he was the face of that band. Uh, it's like in the eighties, Steve Harris was the guy. Even though you, they, you've got one of the best frontmans in the world, Bruce Dickinson, 
Steve Harris, like, he was the guy who started the band. He was like, it was his vision. It was his... And not necessarily... I was certainly never the boss of Anthrax. It, it, it was never that kind of thing. But um, every band just has a guy that just naturally will start to... Everyone starts to fill a role in a band dynamic. And I guess I just had a big fucking mouth at the time. <laughs> and I saw that, hey, well, Steve Harris is the bass player, and he's doing all the interviews. So even though I'm the rhythm guitar player, you know, I, I co-founded the band, you know, and I, I have a lot to say about what we're doing, and I'm writing songs, obviously. I'm not the singer, but I feel like I have a lot to say and I have a point of view, and that's how it started. And then I didn't mind doing press. I didn't mind, like, all the interviews, uh, where some of the other guys just didn't give a shit. And when the time started and, we, you know, we started making records, and then, oh, who wants to go do the European press tour? Well, what's that? It's like... Well, you go to Europe for two, three weeks, and every day you're in a different city, and you sit for nine hours a day, and you you answer the same questions all day long. I was like, I'll go, like, <laughs> you know, like, like I was into that kind of stuff. Whereas other guys were like, I'm not. There's no way in a million years I would ever go do that. So, I just I just gravitated, and that became my role. And then from that, other things just really just came out of it. I was never looking to host a show on VH1. I was never looking to be a part of those list shows. It's just people ask you, hey, do you want to do this? Well, what is it? What do I have to do? How much work does it actually involve? <laughs> do I have to study? No, I'm in, you know? <laughs> Was there anything else that you, you would have done other than music if if, uh, if, thrash, if thrash metal hadn't panned out? Would you have tried to pursue Other than trying to play second base for the Yankees and as a kid who was five foot six, which, you know, I, I realized early on it was probably never going to happen. Um, I always thought that if it wasn't uh, music, I would have written comics because it's the only other thing I knew as much about. I felt I didn't know how to write, certainly, when I was a kid, but I knew enough about comics. I felt that if I ever really put my mind to it, I was writing all the lyrics for Anthrax. I think that's probably why, too. I always felt like, well, I kind of know how to write something. Yeah. So... uh I felt like I could have went into the comic book world. And then, of course, all these years later, strangely enough, I'm writing for DC now. Yeah. So I was able to open that door because people at DC were fans of mine. And my point, they were like, I, I sat in this meeting at DC years ago uh, and they said, we really think you have a point of view and you have something to say. And we'd like, you know, if you want to give it a shot. And I kept turning around, like literally like to see if someone else was standing behind me because I just couldn't believe that. Oh, no, no, not you, asked, Scott. Yeah. We just liked no, you. So we had you in the Grant, room. Grant Morrison is yeah. standing behind Grant, you. Grant, do you yeah. want to do this comic? Yeah. yeah. We just, you know, we're just Anthrax fans. Will you sign this copy of yeah. your new record? Will you play while Grant yeah. writes? <laughs> but yeah, you know, so it's kind of like it opened the door for that. And now I'm, I'm actually proactively... Um, I'm so happy about that part of my life that I'm obviously proactively trying to do as much as I can in that world now and, and, and look for other gigs. And my goal would be to get a regular gig. Like if, if, if DC called or anyone called and said, Hey, do you want to do a year on, you know, animal man? I'd be like, yes. Oh, you know? wow. <laughs> I mean, they didn't say that. I'm saying, <sighs> of course I would. I got to pick Animal Man back up. I read the first two oh my issues God, of dude, it. The, and new I, one, the new Jeff Lemire, yeah. Lemire, Lemire, however you pronounce his name, it's, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I want to. Uh, I, I did. The, I did the first two issues of it, and I really liked it. And then, and then I just got busy, and like two, three months have gone no, by. I'm, and I'm, I'm two issues behind as well. Like, and I only mention Animal Man because that and like Swamp Thing, the reboots of those two have just been. I, I feel like like really, really great. Yeah, they did a really good job I keep with those. Kicking this thing under the That's table. all right. Anyway, let's but tear, yeah, let's fucking yeah. tear this place up. Comics, comics is something outside of music. Even right now, it's something that um, 
I'm really, really stoked about. And actually this week, other than like doing this right now today and like two other like interviews I have to do for the upcoming Anthrax tour, um, all this week I'm only I'm working on the demon right now for DC and like that's all I'm doing this week because I'm like two months behind deadline. <laughs> When's the tour? Uh we start again January twenty second in the oh, States. Oh shit. That's yeah, yeah. It's when is this going to air? When is this going to be on? Well, I'll, th- I'll put it up before that. Yeah, January 22nd, second leg of a U.S. tour. We did the first first leg. Our record came out in September, Worship Music. Uh, we started touring the States right after that with Testament and Death Angel opening. The tour was fucking unbelievable. Okay, so like, Worship, Testament, Death Angel. So it's a Christian. Uh, it's very, yes. It's, yeah. it's very, very, um, very, very Christian, very proper. Yep. Uh, come out and and worship with us. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have a lot of fun. God is both uh, God and Manthrax. Hey, the, you know, I always said the the best, you know, I don't know what I'm saying. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> you have that thing. Listen, and you when, you when you first showed up, you were like, it's my first day back at work, and I have a kid, and my brain feels like sludge. Yeah, exactly. But seriously, the tour's been great. I sold out doing... It's one of those things where I, I hate to belittle it in any way, but sometimes I feel like... You know, you hang around long enough and everything comes full circle. And it's crazy because we released this record. It was our first studio record in eight years. And uh, we're doing better business now than we have since the late 80s. Like we entered number 12 on the Billboard charts beyond everyone's expectations. Um, The tour was sold out. Like everything's going great with these dates coming up. Um, We're booked all year. We're playing bigger and better shows than we have in forever. Like it's it's crazy how everything's just like there's this whole new generation of kids who didn't get to see us that first time around and are just way into it again. I mean, there really is something to just sticking it out. Just yeah, fucking I mean, we just, sticking it out. We're a working band. We've just been on tour all these years, playing gigs, playing gigs. I mean, it's the thing that's enabled us to stay here all these years is the fact that we love playing live and we're really good at it. And we were able to go eight years without releasing a record and just basically go out and gig for eight years and play festivals in Europe and and do our thing. And we made a record that's fucking great. And um, people are people are really digging it. Well, at Scott Ian on Twitter. Yes. And Scott uh, underscore Ian. Scott underscore Ian at Scott underscore Ian. And, uh, and uh, there's also at Anthrax on Twitter. And Anthrax at Anthrax. Anything else you want to promote while you're here? Um, while I'm here right now, uh, my wife Pearl has a new record out uh, called The Swing House Sessions. It's an acoustic, basically acoustic version of, of her record that she released. And uh, When are you guys going to mash up some music together? Well, I, 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 wrote, I wrote on her stuff because she, her stuff is rock. I mean, she's yeah. straight up rock. And that's where I come from. I mean, I come from ACDC, Ted Nugent, Cheap Trick, Kiss, Aerosmith. You know, that's, that's really what I first got into when I started listening to music and really got serious about guitar. So... It was kind of right in my wheelhouse to play rhythm guitar in her band. I wrote a little bit on the record, but uh, the guy, Jim Wilson, that she writes with is a much better writer for that kind of stuff. I'm a more of a metal riff guy than a rock riff guy, but um, I could certainly play the shit out of it. So it's, it's fun when I get to play shows with her. Have you, have, have you had the, is it, was, was her dad an Anthrax fan? I can't say Meatloaf was an Anthrax fan. No, he had heard of us and stuff, but no, he's, I, I, he wasn't listening to Honey, thrash metal! Come on! But you can check out hers at, at, at Pearl a Day, P-E-A-R-L-A-D-A-Y. You can check her out. So there. sweet. Your wife is so sweet. I, I always, I always really, it was always really nice to see you guys, like, you know, Monday after Monday, turn up to that Monday night Largo show, and... Uh, we like to laugh. That's good. Our relationship, you know, it's funny, back in the, back in the day, too, like, 
2000 when we first started dating, 2000, 2001, we were both coming out of terrible relationships and we were both drinking like unbelievable amounts of booze, <laughs> like tolerance that now if I even think about it, I have to go to the emergency. Oh yeah, room. I was, I was too. I was, yeah. I was right there with yeah, you. Yeah, I, I remember. I mean, like everyone was in the same boat back then, and like I, it's amazing that we made it through those first few years with the amount we were drinking. But like Largo was like our regular thing. Like go get unbelievably, like go to Largo and then go to the Coronet on on La Cienega, where the new Largo is now. Strangely enough, that was like our crawl, like three, four nights a week. Like well, and just, Largo used to have that. Bar a couple doors down from it on Fairfax, which was Max's back in the day. Yeah, now it's right. called the Dime. The Dime, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a, it was like the room of, it was the size of a bachelor apartment. Yeah, and you would just fucking crawl from Largo to there, and then go the opposite direction to Damiano's Pizza that oh. was open until four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> or 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 the uh, or the uh, Cantors across the street. Exactly. Oh my God! Basically, that's that street was designed to keep you drunk and fat. Yeah. It's just, it's crazy, like, when I think about how much I drank back then, and uh, I, there's no way. Now, like, forget it. It's like, you know, I have, like, three beers. It's like, thank you, good night. <laughs> oh, I can't even have, like, if I, I can't even drink coffee. I'm like, <laughs> is, there too, is there caffeine in this? Because I can't, I just don't know if I'm going to be able to, I have a lot of stuff to do today. I just don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. Yeah. Anyway. Just to make sure it's not a baby emergency when I see my Oh, you're good. Everything's okay? Yeah, everything's okay. Oh, Scott, you're going to be fine. <laughs> You're a good dad. Hey, Nick. Nick, hey. Nick. Nick's been over there this whole time. Hey, guys. Do you want to? You want to give us? You want to give us the last line of the show, or do you want to add anything? Enjoy. Whoa! Whoa! <laughs> oh, Nick! I give you one line, and look what you do. Uh, Nick just blew, blew his ears out. Microphone. Yeah, blew my ears out. Enjoy ha- your burrito. Okay, good. Good thank read. You. Good read. <laughs> good to see you again, Nick. <laughs> Happy New Year. You. you too. All right, Scotty, and thank you for being here. Good Thanks, to see Chris. you, man. Also, want to thank Magic Johnson for dropping by. <laughs> if by dropping by is equated to breezing by in the background and not stopping to acknowledge us in any way, then, uh, yeah. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Hover.com. Hover is domain name registration and management that's simple. For 10% off your new domain, go to hover.com slash Nerdist. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast, American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.